This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. It's time for bookends. Kia ora. welcome to Bookends with Ruth Todd and Moran Rat, and today we have two non-fiction titles for you. I'm talking to Paul Diamond about his really interesting mm. book about the downfall of the Whanganui mayor, Charles Mackey, who shot the poet Darcy Creswell. Yes, I remember that. Was I still alive then, or was no, it just you would have remembered the, when it happened? I've read reading about yes, it. Mm. Yeah. Yes, I'm not quite as ancient. No, I don't think you're that old, Ruth. (laughs) And I've got, um, it's very honest and it's a moving account of the journey between a a palliative care physician and her patients, how they travel the journey together. And it's uh, written by Sue Marsden. Sue Marsden moved from a 10-year career in oncology into palliative medicine in the late 1980s. About this time, she met Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, a pivotal meeting both professionally and personally. Dr Kubler-Ross introduced her to the vital importance of self-awareness when working with people who are suffering, and Sue went on to train with her organisation and become part of the EKS facilitation team in New Zealand. As a result, Sue has facilitated its self-awareness workshops in Zimbabwe, Southeast Asia, USA, as well as Australasia, alongside teaching palliative medicine in many settings. Welcome to the programme, Sue. Thank you very much. It's, uh, it's, I feel very privileged to be on the programme. So well, you. I'm very privileged to have this beautiful little hardback, um, such a beautifully produced book by Mary Egan, isn't it? Oh, I'm absolutely delighted with um, what they came up with, with the in terms of the cover and just the layout. So, yeah, it was, it, they've, they've been amazing to work with, yes. How have things changed so much since you were a student at Otago Medical School in the 1960s. <laughs> we, we could do a whole programme on that probably. Well, exactly. I mean, in those days, well, there was only really one medical school in um, New Zealand at the time and there was just 120 places at that medical school each year. And um, in the class I was in, there was 19 women out of a class of 120 and you were very clearly given the message by um, your fellow students that um, you're just keeping a man out of medical school. <laughs> and so it, it, there have been a, obviously huge changes just in, in that because now 50% of, or more than 50%, I think, of, of um, uh, medical students are women. So things changed. <laughs> they did, indeed. So I'm not going to go through your medical school training, etc. No, 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 don't but don't. palliative care became a love of yours and uh, yes. w- when you met Elizabeth yes. and um, when was when did that really happen and when did you know that this is what you wanted to do? Um, well I was working in the oncology um, <coughs> service that I was working in at Waikato Hospital we were looking after the patients then from when they were um, referred for oncological treatment and um, until they died it was uh, and I hadn't realised just how 
integrated that service was and was probably a bit ahead of its time. Um, and so one of the things that I became um, um, part of my role really was working with um, some of the oncology patients that were dying at the time. And um, then um, what what happened was the then, I think it was the iteration called the Health Department, Health Department, I think it was called in those days, as we're going back to the 1980s, um, charged all the hospitals with hospital boards with um, uh, looking uh, looking at how do you care for people who are dying, and there was really very little interest in getting onto those committees. And I sort of thought, oh, perhaps I should just um, get onto this committee, and um, and sort of it, it went from there really, and and so my passion grew for trying to develop some services um, focused as much as in uh, almost completely on people who were not going to um, uh, live live long from the disease that the incurable disease that they had and initially so I set up the palliative care service at Waikato Hospital and initially it was all oncology patients but very gradually we started to be asked to see some of the people with heart disease and renal disease who who were dying and to see whether we could help make their deaths um, more comfortable. So it was a passion that grew, I suppose, and um, took over. And you met with, um, that was a pivotal moment for you, when you met Elizabeth Cooper-Ross and uh, realised the importance that she placed on being aware of one's own emotions and issues and when working with people who are suffering. And you you say, and I may quote, um, as Elizabeth said, you need, first you need to deal with your own shit. (laughs) Absolutely, and and she had she was a Swiss woman who looked, who worked in, um, in 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 Chicago, but she still had this very broad um, uh, sort of Swiss accent, and she sort of like shook her finger at me, and I could almost feel her <laughs> her, her uh, boring right through to my soul, and I, at the time I thought, what on earth does she mean? But um, Within the course of that workshop, it became quite clear what she meant, that if we don't deal with um, our own issues around whatever, uh, grief, loss, um, unhappiness, issues with anything, uh, if we don't are not aware of those and don't become, um, yeah, more comfortable, yeah, I suppose more comfortable with, with our, our past issues, then we're more likely to project them onto the to the um, situation with the patient and family that we're trying to deal with um, because we just are not aware that uh, it's, it's being triggered and of course the other part of that is um, helping to protect us from compassion fatigue and uh, burnout which we hear a lot about these days <laughs> I love the little stories about clients that you have had and um, I thought those were probably the most important part of the book because yeah. you were able to analyse them and look at them and yeah. and look at your own past because you had yeah. come to New Zealand from England as a child yeah. and you had yeah. suff- suffered loneliness, no friends yeah. to begin with and yeah. Um, yeah. talking about death wasn't done then and, uh, no. you know, and the power of listening comes through in every kind of counselling, doesn't it? 
sorry, what was that? I, I missed the, that. The power of listening. Oh, is, yes, ab- absolutely. I mean, we're, we're born with two ears and one mouth, but sometimes we don't tend to <laughs> tend to um, listen as much as we talk. And um, sometimes we just spend ages just listening to what's, what's happening and what's worrying and what's disturbing person. That's um, right. And if we, mm. And so what I'd like to for you to tell me, one or two of the <laughs> difficult ones, well, they were all difficult, but um, <laughs> you obviously have all the skills now and um, have done this for quite a long time. And um, it was wonderful to read of your, you know, of the way you had sometimes tried not hard not to judge because families and sometimes spouses do not agree with the person who's suffering of of what they should treat and how they should be treated so um, can you give us a couple of those examples Uh, well uh, well, there was the the ones where I sort of nearly tripped tripped up well one of those and one of the ones where you didn't (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, the one that always spring, springs to mind because it, it was it was so helpful for me was um, a young woman called Anna who um, taught me a lot about a lot about my own loneliness. Um, she came into our inpatient unit and she was a, a young woman in her thirties with two adolescent children. And at that time, the inpatient unit where I was working, we actually not only had single rooms, but we had four bedded rooms. And at the time, she was the only person in this four bedded room. And I used to, um, at that time, my the, the way that I was working. Um, I would do a ward round each morning um, and um, make sure everybody was attended to. And if there were any issues, sort of sit and talk, talk through some of those and decide where we were going to go with it. What I found with Anna was I'd come to the um, come to the door of the room and I looked at her. And this particular day, I my gut just went, oh, you know, something was not right. I felt terrible I, and I'm sure everybody can relate to that um, sort of gut feeling where it just feels all tight and I found that I when I, that I was spending less and less time with her and not more and more which is probably what she needed from me. I mean there were other members of the team also who were spending time with her. So um, then I kind of suddenly thought what's this about? You know maybe this is you know and I remembered Elizabeth's words, deal with your own shit first. <laughs> and um, I went away and did some um, reflection and I think I worked with my clinical supervisor and um, recognised that this was indeed, um, uh, when I saw her, it was, she just looked so lonely and um, it was triggering that loneliness that you, uh, you, you actually mentioned a little bit before. Um, but at the time, I was going through a very acrimonious divorce, which was those who've been through that know that that can be a very lonely experience. But it was also um, hooking into that experience of coming from England as a five-year-old and feeling so lonely because there were no kids to play with, I didn't have my toys and all of that sort of thing. Long story cut short, um, having... Um, kind of done a, done that reflection and recognised what was going on when I looked at um, Anna. The next time I, I 
um, next time I went to her room and I walked into the room feeling quite a lot easier and I just sat on her bed and as I often do and, and she looked up at me and sort of said, oh, you look better today and she gave me a big hug so, and from then on I was actually able to connect with her and help her through what was happening for her rather than being immobilised by my own um, issues as, as we would say. Before we finish, thank you yes. for that one. Um, I wondered if, um, the benefits of impromptu drawings. You use oh, that yes. a lot, don't you? I use. I don't, I don't quite so much now, but I did um, for a time. And um, the, Elizabeth um, was a great advocate of that. And um, I learned about that in the first workshop, but I also did some work with a... Um, a Jungian psychologist from New York, and what one of the things he would say was that an impromptu drawing is like a um, an image from the psyche, a snapshot. And so, sometimes what I would do with patients who were um, who just couldn't get the words out, they just didn't know what they wanted to say, I'd just say, "How about we give you some crayons and a piece of paper, and you can just draw something." Um, and it was quite interesting that some of the patients who you'd think, oh, no, they won't be interested at all. Um, I'm thinking of a, a man in his 70s, um, and he just sort of said to me, oh, no, I can't, I can't, I can't draw. And I said, oh, I'll just give it a go. It ends. So he did. And um, we actually managed to um, work through by communicating through that drawing um, what the issues were for him and one of the issues for him was that his wife had recently died and everybody was sort of saying oh he's great he's sad because he's grieving and all of this the usual sort of thing which was true he was grieving for the fact that his wife had died but his main issue was that during that marriage he felt his whole creativity had been squashed and um, this came out in the in the drawing, um, and from then on, he started to draw the most incredible drawings. And um, every time I saw him after that in the outpatient clinic, he would bring me two or three drawings, and then um, talk about the um, the garden he was developing, and we would bring flowers in from that. So. It can be a very powerful and very simple tool to use uh, as a means of communication and for patients to express themselves in that way. Um, well, Sue, Sue Marsden has uh, written a very honest account and a detailed account that will help both uh, people who are dying and their families and also um, other professionals because you have travelled widely with your wisdom Sue and uh, thank you Elizabeth self-awareness yes. when working and people at the end of life is published by Mary Egan Publishing You're listening to Bookends on Plains FM 96.9 Downfall, the destruction of Charles Mackey, recounts the shocking story of Whanganui Mayor Charles Mackey, who shot poet Darcy Gresswell in 1920. And after serving a prison sentence, he ended up in Berlin, only to be shot by a German sniper in a violent incident during the rise of the Nazis. The author of this book is Paul Diamond, Ngāti Hoa, Te Rārawa, Ngāpui, 
He's curator Māori at the Alexander Turnbull Library and a broadcaster and oral historian uh, for many years. I've always been intrigued about this story. Um, I think I heard about it from Darcy's point of view and um, and not, you know, just just that he'd been shot and that it was something to do with his sexuality. But I knew nothing much about Charles Mackey. So um, I leapt upon this book when it arrived, Paul, to, <laughs> to hear the other side. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised you heard about it via Darcy Cresswell because um, one of the real lessons for me in writing this, uh, and Nicola Leggett, the publisher at Massey University Press, pointed this out to me, um, is that these two men have got different timelines. You know, Mackey's timeline ends in 1920 when he gets shot in Berlin, but Darcy Cresswell lived till 1960, and I think that was part of the reason I was struggling with arranging all the material for the book because these things are happening in two different time periods. And of course, Christchurch and Canterbury, you know, there's a huge association with um, the Cresswell family. That's where Cresswell grew up. He, his, his father was, um, I think it was a lawyer involved and in, made a lot of money from land speculation and things, uh, land sales. They farmed um, near Timaru, but, but Darcy went to Christ College um, and on one of his periods back in New Zealand, you know, was, was in Christchurch. Um, his mother knew um, Ursula Bethel, so he knew her, and apparently his articles about Christchurch um, sort of were so scandalous that um, the press stopped printing them, and um, Darcy wrote that, you know, Miss Bethel was the only person who would receive him in Christchurch because he'd, he'd caused such a sensation. Actually, again, Nicola Leggett said to me, well, what were these articles? And um, so I did do a bit of digging in that wonderful Papers Pass website and did find them. The thing about Cresswell is that um, I struggle with his poetry. A lot of people do. He, he loved an old style of poetry that was very out of fashion. He hated modernism. Um, but his prose was extraordinary, and I think it's still great to read. John Newton says that you know he still finds readers for his work. I mean, his two volumes of his um, autobiography are really worth looking at, and this journalism is really funny. I mean, he described Christchurch as a set for a Western movie, which, of course, didn't go down very well <laughs> no. in the 1930s. <laughs> no. So, yeah, I'm not surprised. I mean, because he's yeah. got the bigger presence, hasn't he? And he yes. wasn't kind of erased. Anyway, so two homosexual men, but, you know, had very different kind of experiences, lived longer, and he never got kind of erased from history like the other guy did. I'm intrigued. He he doesn't seem like somebody who would be discreet. In, fa in fact, you know, as you say, he, he wrote scandalous, in quotation marks, things about Christchurch. But he never really... Um, he never really divulged, did he, what had no, gone on is... between the two of them? No. Well, the only evidence about what did go on was this very strange type statement that um, was typed, apparently, well, taken down at his hospital bed because he was still recovering from the gunshot wound, the, gun, uh, the bullet lodged sort of near his lung, one of his lungs. Um, but he never signed it. And... You know, police historians have told me that that's really unusual because, you know, if someone might die, then there's even more incentive to get them to sign the statement. But the, the other person who signed it was um, Mackey, who said, inasmuch as this relates to my own acts and deeds, it's substantially true, which 
I remember initially thinking, well, that's a bit odd. But then when I thought about it more and put it alongside some other, other evidence, uh, including a newspaper report that said that the court was going to convene at, at the hospital, I thought, oh, hang on a minute here. I think they're trying to shut something down. They, they were trying to sort of control what Cresswell might say by just limiting it to the statement. And then I started to think, I think there was perhaps something going on in Whanganui not just involving Mackie, and that perhaps Cresswell had discovered this, mm. and then the town was just desperately trying to shut it down, and that possibly there were other people involved. There's all sorts of other reports and archives and newspapers, and there's been some anecdotal stories that there was some sort of thing going on in Monganui. So it may not have been, you know, um, some sort of relationship between these two men, because that's what some people have assumed. I think a lot of gay people have assumed that they'd, you know, had some sort of relationship. And then, in, you know, in the process of that, Chris will suddenly blackmails Mackie. But I think there may have been more to it. The other theory from Helen Shaw is that um, Ron, Ronald Cuthbert, a young uh, friend of uh, Chris Walls, who's mentioned in his writing who he was at school with, somehow had become involved with Mackie and that Chris Walls was trying to save him. So you see, there's, all, there's multiple possibilities. Mm. And people have always wondered, well, how the heck did he know the mayor was gay? And why did he take it upon himself to do this? And was there a conspiracy in the town? Um, because a lot of people, Mackie had some pretty powerful enemies who were trying to get rid of him as mayor. But, you know, sometimes people say that maybe a conspiracy, maybe it's a cock-up. You know, maybe it was just a weird combination of things. Chris will heard about this and took it upon himself to, to do what he did. Which I don't know if we'll ever know, but one of the great things about doing this book, um, Downfall, is that perhaps there are stories in other parts of the country, and they may not necessarily be in Whanganui, because, you know, we're quite mobile, aren't we? And, and we mm. move around the country. And I, that, um, the Crestville family who were in Whanganui, they left in the 30s, and they, they were, actually went to Auckland. So who knows what may still be out there, um, but now people have got a chance finally to read a book about this. Yes, and, and I mean, Cresswell went to London and he was there around about the time that Mackie um, went there. Mackie, of course, um, with obviously family support, um, re-established himself in London as a journalist. With his his own family, yeah. Mm. Most of his siblings kind of stuck by him and they helped um, financially, I think. His sister, who lived in New Plymouth, she went with him. She basically like was a guarantor for him and set him up. Obviously, he couldn't practice as a lawyer, which is what he'd done in Monganui. So he worked in advertising, I discovered, which would have been quite a... Um, racy trendy, thing to do, yeah. Racy kind of thing to be in. Um, there's that uh, Sayers book, Murder Must Advertise, which I did look at, because that's set in advertising in that period in England. And he was also writing um, newspaper articles. I was really interested to see that, you know, Mackie was actually in London for 18 months. Um, he was only in Berlin for four or five months, because that's the tragic thing, is that he hadn't really been there that long when he got caught up in that riot and was killed. But of those 18 months Mackie was in London, um, Cresswell was there for 12 of those 18 months. And it is really tantalising to wonder if they did meet. You know, they, um, Cresswell was sort of living in the West End and Soho, Marble Arch around there. Mackie was living in Bloomsbury. You know, you know that's, they're all very close. And, uh, you know, Francis Hodgkins was living in Bloomsbury at the same time as Mackie. It, all these sort of Cranley Barton, all these 
Hector Belifo, all these expat New Zealanders, quite a few gay men there and, um, and women, if people have speculated about their sexuality. You know, if you were interested in art, um, it was a great place to be. And, and, um, and Charles Mackey, it, it must, you know, it was because he was, you know, one of the drivers and founders of the Sargent Gallery. So he clearly had a knowledge of and, a, and an interest in the arts. Absolutely, and it's it's so interesting having um, spent time at the Sargent, getting to know the staff there and the collections. And the interesting thing about a gallery, you know, that, that opens in 1919 and is built during the Great War, is that it's kind of caught up in that whole process of um, amazing developments in art. And Henry Sargent's widow, uh, who remarried a man called Mr. Neem, and she went to Europe and to buy art um, with this kind of huge fortune that was left to establish the gallery, which, you know, didn't have a collection, so they were borrowing things. But she, with her new husband, the art master from Wanganui Collegia, are in Europe. And recently the Sargent had an exhibition where they pulled out this quote from Mrs. Neem. So in September 1920, she's in... Um, oh, Mr. Neem, actually, is writing back to the council. So Mackie's in prison, actually, by this time. Um, but, but Mr. Neem is writing back saying, you know, you'll be very pleased to see that we aren't, you know, buying anything modernist and we're not, or any of those cults. Or cubism, he talked about. <laughs> it is kind of funny to think if they had, you know, this, yes. this new artist, Picasso or Braca, you know, the sergeant would probably have stupendously um, valuable art collections. But because <laughs> yes. they were determined to buy this sort of traditional pre-modernist art, it's so funny. But there's a story from the family of the man who Mackie left his typewriter to. So this was a Rhodes Scholar that Mackie met on the ship who was from Australia. And I tracked down his family and they said they have a story in their family that Mackie was presumably in London and he was at an art exhibition. And I think it was modern art and he said to the man standing beside him, you know, I don't understand this. And the man explained it to him. And then he went to another gallery and saw a picture of that man and realised he'd been talking to Aldous Huxley. <laughs> and... <laughs> it's kind of amazing. The mayor of Wanganui uh, yeah. runs into Aldous Huxley, who explains mm. modern art to him. I love that story. Well, I, you know, the the amount of research you've done for this is extraordinary because um, you were the, you got a Creative New Zealand residency in Berlin, which enabled you to really um, look at at what he was doing there and the places he would have gone to and how he lived his life there. I was very lucky to have that support. Uh, I had a history award from the uh, Ministry for Culture and Heritage, which actually let me, that enabled me to get there um, on an earlier trip. And that was the trip where I really went around all these archives in Berlin and discovered there was a huge amount of material because back then for a foreign journalist to be shot by a policeman was was a huge story and a very embarrassing incident for the police in Berlin and for the Prussian government. Um, and so the British High Commission had material, the Foreign Affairs Department had material. So there was quite a lot of information there. Um, but the, I also had a couple of um, language scholarships from the Goethe Institute here in Wellington and did German courses in Göttingen and Berlin. And that meant I could actually um, operate in those archives on my own. And because early on, you know, when I first went to Berlin in 2007, I had to have a huge amount of help 
from German friends who would contact these archives and libraries and then they sometimes came with me. And then I had the, the residency. I had to come back early because of the um, pandemic, but that was my seventh trip to Berlin. So I've been really lucky that I'd been able to accumulate things earlier and then people back in New Zealand had helped me translate that material. So um, yes, as you say, a huge amount of research. And to be honest, I got a little bit lost in it. And it was really lucky um, that the idea was picked up by Nicola Leggett, who's been a lot, you know, she'd known about this project and had been a long time supporter. But also another key person was Anna Rogers, um, the fabulous editor and historian and researcher herself, who did a major structural edit of this and helped me kind of see the wood for the trees and, and really helps Mackie's story and Crystal's story emerge. And then she also did the other edit of the book. So I'm really grateful to those two women really for helping me bring this to fruition. Well, thank you, Paul, because it's, I found it a wonderful story. It's beautifully um, put together, illustrations, huge number of them. And as you know, as usual, Massey University Press has done a, a marvellous job in presenting the book. So the book is called Downfall, The Destruction of Charles Mackey. It's by Paul Diamond and published, as we say, by Massey University Press. And join us, Moran Rout and Ruth Todd, next Tuesday on Bookends on Plains FM 96.9.